This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues from the perspective of the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Dr. Michael Penn an African-American professor of psychology at Franklin and Marshall College. He teaches psychopathology. Franklin and Marshall College is the oldest college in Pennsylvania. He teaches psychopathology with courses related to the development of mental illness, and his interests include the relationship between culture and psychopathology, hope and hopelessness, and human spiritual development. I started the interview by asking Michael where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? Well, I was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and uh, the first few years of my life I lived um, in a school bus that was abandoned on my grandmother's property by the city. Um, my grandmother uh, had a small house, and so my mother decided that she would have her, uh, her brothers uh, write the school bus, remove the, the seats, remove the tires, and uh, she made it our house, and we lived in that house for three years. And at the end of that period, the city came by and said that the house was not fit for human habitation, so we moved, and we moved to, to New York City. And uh, I lived in New York City for uh, most of my life until I got into the eighth grade. And in the eighth grade, I met a teacher whose name was Mrs. Maria Paul. And Mrs. Paul told me and a friend of mine, Michael Bivens, that we should go uh, to her office after class every day at three and at that time she would teach us what she called 80 ways to words of wisdom and uh, she taught us in that way at her own time at her own expense for a year and at the end of the year she said to 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 us so uh, uh, how would you like to go to boarding school mm. and we didn't know anything about boarding school but it sounded like an interesting thing so we mm left our home in Brooklyn and went to boarding school in New England. How was it that it was New York that you went to from Winston-Salem? My dad's family are New Yorkers. And uh, so when we went to New York, my mother became the maid of my father's sister. My family, my mother's side of the family is very poor, but my father's side of the family, they did have some means. And in fact, they lived in a fairly expensive part of Manhattan and uh, had, had some wealth. They, they owned a rather large church. I come from a long family of ministers, a long line of, of ministers. And uh, so um, they had some wealth, they had some land, some property, and uh, we went to New York to benefit from the fact that they were there and that she could work for them. Okay, and so this boarding school, where was the boarding school? The boarding school was in Waltham, Massachusetts. I think it's still there. It's called Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall Huntington Boarding School. Okay. 
Yeah, and they gave me a scholarship called the ABC Scholarship, the A Better Chance Scholarship. It's a scholarship that Oprah Winfrey and a number of people have contributed to. It takes mm-hmm. poor children out of inner city schools and puts them in private schools. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, that was one of the most difficult periods of my life because I left the comforts, although we were extremely poor, poor neighborhoods tend to be very, very close. And uh, we had Spanish neighbors to our right, African-American neighbors to our left. We knew everyone on the block. The person across the street from me gave me my first job. Uh, we, were, we were deeply connected to one another. And so I left a neighborhood where I was known by everyone, loved by everyone, cared for by everyone, into a neighborhood that I experienced as being, relative to the neighborhood that I had left, a bit colder, uh, a bit more severe, a bit more formal, and uh, I arrived without the sort of the cultural accoutrements of, uh, of a sophisticated boarding school student. Mm-hmm. I was, a, you know, basically a poor African-American kid with all the, 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 uh, the insights and the, 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 uh, the cleverness of, of, of urban life, but none of the sophistication mm. of, of, mm-hmm. uh, of the middle class, and so I felt extremely out of place and actually quite ashamed. Uh, mm. I couldn't tell stories about my father doing this or my mother doing that. or uh, I couldn't invite people to my home. There was, so all of the things that, 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 that connect the middle class mm. and the upper middle class, mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't a part of. Right. And so that, that, was a, that was a time of transition for me. Mm. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, now, was there anybody at all, was there a soul at all that shared your background? You know, there could have been many souls that would have been receptive to me, but I didn't have at that time the courage mm. to make myself vulnerable by telling them who I was. Mm. And so I basically pretended to be a typical boarding school student. And I would say that for a time I kind of lost myself mm. at, at, at that boarding school. And it took quite a while. It took actually the love of uh, someone that I met after boarding school, a Dutch woman by the name of Katinka van Lamsverdi. I was uh, I was uh, living in a synagogue after boarding school, uh, not in Newton, Massachusetts, Temple Emmanuel, and uh, I was the janitor there. And every night I would go upstairs into the uh, library synagogue and read the wonderful books there. It's really where I fell in love with Judaism, and I would read the great prophets of Israel. And then one night, it suddenly occurred to me that I was dying of loneliness. And I said to myself, oh my God, I am dying of loneliness. And I wasn't speaking metaphorically. I really felt this intense pain, this intense isolation. Strangely enough, the next morning, there was at my door this woman who introduced herself as Katinka Van Lamsverdi. And she said that she worked for Oxfam America, and she had heard about me some weeks ago. But last night, she had this very strong sense that she should come and meet me. Mm. And so I invited her into my apartment. We had tea together. And sure enough, she became, in a short amount of time, one of my closest friends. Mm. And she was the first person that I had met who was a white person who loved me in a way that completely transcended race. And uh, she had none of the hang-ups, none of the fears, none of the anxieties associated with being a white 
girl with a black man. So there wasn't much of an age difference, or what? No, we, we were roughly peers. Okay. And uh, she was also uh, she was the the daughter of a very wealthy Dutch family, and um, I ended up going to to Holland to mm-hmm. meet her family. Her family uh, suggested that we go to Africa. Unbelievable. We traveled to Africa and. Uh, Mm. Traveled to France and just spent a long, a long time in Europe and Africa together. What time span are you talking about? Uh, this was around 1978 to 1981, mm-hmm. roughly in that period. Now, was there anything that happened between the time you graduated and the time you were at this synagogue as a janitor? Did was that an immediate transition for you? No, no, no. So, so let's so, go over some of that. So I finished, uh, I finished high school. Mm-hmm. And then I went to uh, I went into the navy. Oh, okay. And I I became a quartermaster, which is navigations on a s- submarine. You know, submarines in the United States Navy are three months underwater, three months on the surface. Mm-hmm. And so I was a I was a naval submarine navigator mm-hmm. for three years, and uh, had a remarkable commander whose name was Commander Kessler. And Commander Kessler, in a strange sense, you know, I grew up without my dad. And the, 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 the lore is that if you grow up without your father, you look for your father in every man you meet. And that mm-hmm. was really kind of my, my way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I met him, and uh, he uh, really sort of inspired in me the sense that I could accomplish something significant, mm-hmm. uh, that I could study, and that I could uh, attain academic success. Mm-hmm. Although he never said that, all of his interactions with me gave me the impression that he liked me, admired me, thought that I had potential. And so when I finished the Navy, I immediately uh, knew that I was going to go to, to university mm-hmm. and, uh, and ended up at Brandeis University as the first place that I studied. Mm. And why Brandeis? Brandeis had a program called the Transitional Year Program. I don't know if it still exists, mm. but the Transitional Year Program was a program that took students who maybe needed further academic preparation, or at least felt that they did, gave them a year in which they took two university courses and two courses that sort of prepared them to better function on the university level. Mm-hmm. And I, So I spent the first year there, and then the second year I matriculated as a freshman into Brandeis. So I spent mm-hmm. two years at Brandeis, one mm-hmm. in the TYP program and and one uh, as a as a freshman. Mm-hmm. It was just undergraduate work. It was undergraduate. General undergraduate work. Yeah, I studied actually philosophy. Okay. And almost every course that I took in my freshman year was a course in philosophy. Was that when you found you were drawn to philosophy, or was it earlier than that that you found yourself drawn to philosophy? I think I have always been drawn to philosophy, although I did not know that there was a field, a discipline, that was concerned with the kinds of questions that, that, that animated my interest. Mm-hmm. So I have, from a child, been rather philosophical in my thinking, mm. but it wasn't until I got to college that I actually knew that there was a discipline of philosophy and a long tradition of it and a body of scholarship in it. And mm-hmm. What happened after Brandeis? Well, I was at Brandeis, and at the end of my freshman year, for a strange reason that I cannot explain to you, I had the strong intuition that I must move immediately to Pennsylvania. Hmm. And I had never been to Pennsylvania. I didn't know anybody in Pennsylvania, but I, I wrapped up my affairs. And uh, at the end of my freshman year, I moved to Pennsylvania. And when I arrived in Pennsylvania, I went to 
the University of Pennsylvania, which was in Philadelphia, and I said that I'd, I'd like to matriculate there. I'd like to study there. And they said, oh, no, the University of Pennsylvania is a very competitive uh, school. You would have had to have applied uh, some time ago. You know, we've done with the application cycle. Mm -hmm. And that just didn't strike me as true. Mm -hmm. And so I said, tell me where the admissions office is. And they mm -hmm. directed me to the admissions office. I went there. I applied. And within mm, three weeks or so, I had been accepted to Penn, and that's where I finished. Now, what, what, what years are we talking about with Brandeis and then finishing Brandeis and going to... Okay, you? so uh, let's see. Uh, I arrived at the University of Pennsylvania in 1982, I believe it oh, okay. was. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you started at the University of Pennsylvania. Right. Uh, and so you, you were working on your undergraduate studies there. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I... I, I uh, designed my own major, which was a major in psychology, history, and religion at the University of Pennsylvania, mm. under the guidance of a remarkable Kierkegaardian scholar by the name of Stephen Dunning, Stephen R. Dunning. And, uh, so you were sort of fine-tuning what your path was from philosophy to more of psychology and religious Yeah, studies. I mean, I, I, yeah, I was interested in philosophy, but I was interested in the application of philosophy to real problems in the world. And so I decided, after hearing a lecture by a fellow by the name of Wade Nobles, Wade Nobles is an African-American psychologist who gave a lecture at the University of Pennsylvania that is one of the most remarkable experiences of my life. Uh, you can imagine an audience of about 500 people, and he gives this lecture that is of such luminosity and such intensity and such wisdom, weaving together the science of psychology, philosophical knowledge and wisdom and insight, and his understanding of the, of, of the sacred traditions. He wove these together in such a tight uh, web of insight that when he finished his lecture, everyone sat in complete and utter silence for what seemed to be two or three minutes mm. because we were captivated. And, and really raised to a new level of understanding. And I said, whatever this man does, that, that's what I want to do. And I found out that he was a psychologist, and so I decided that mm -hmm. I was going to become a psychologist. So you were there for three more years? Or? Three and a half more three years. Three more years, okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you got your bachelor's in psychology and religion. Psychology, so. history, and religion. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And then what happened after that? Then I, uh, I got a Ford Foundation Fellowship, and uh, I took the Ford Foundation Fellowship to the university, to Temple University in Philadelphia. Uh, I studied um, to become a clinical psychologist, and uh, continued um, to do research uh, in the study of uh, the empirical study of hope and hopelessness. When I was at the University of Pennsylvania, I studied with a fellow by the name of Martin Seligman, and Martin Seligman is one of the great experimental psychopathologist, probably the greatest experimental psychopathologist. And he developed the learned helplessness paradigm. Mm. And the learned helplessness paradigm began uh, really in research on mongrel dogs, exposing mongrel dogs to uncontrollable aversive events, and looking at the impact of exposure to uncontrollability on development, on functioning, on the emotional life of these dogs. and. Uh, it became one of the first laboratory-based analogs for the development of depression in humans. Mm. We began to apply the model to understanding how humans might develop depression in reaction to 
exposure to trauma. Mm. And so um, when I left the University of, of Pennsylvania, I went to Temple University where I sort of continued to, to study uh, the impact of trauma, but I was interested in integrating um, philosophical insights into the study of, 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 of traumatic events. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I took my early sort of laboratory interest and laboratory training gradually into the field and began to study um, phenomena like violence against women and girls, um, phenomena like uh, torture, phenomena like uh, severe uh, and chronic violence that is state-sponsored or, or, or cultural forms of violence. One of, the, one of the factors that was very meaningful was the early days of clinical work. One of the things that really surprised me was that nearly everyone that I encountered in my early days of clinical practice were there to see me because they had been the victims of some kind of uh, unscrupulous um, uh, treatment. Almost everyone that I saw was a woman or a girl. They all had basically the same story to tell. They were at different stages of recovery from the abuse that they had suffered. But uh, it was startling to me to be in a practice in which uh, the only male that I saw in two years, in my first two years of clinical training, was an engineer who was an undergraduate suffering from anxiety. Everyone else was a woman or a girl. And uh, that struck me, and I decided at, at that time that... Uh, was the client pool the student body or what? The client pool was anyone who lived in, the area? in Philadelphia. And so our clinic was open to, 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 to anyone. Anyone could make an appointment. And uh, mm-hmm. so it really did reflect the... I suppose it reflected the fact that women are more likely to, to pursue help if they feel the need... But I think it also was a reflection of how much harm and how much suffering uh, women and girls uh, in Philadelphia were experiencing. Mm-hmm. And I had the suspicion that it was a problem that crossed the globe. Mm-hmm. So it shaped my early interest in, 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 in the problem of violence against women and girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I was at Temple University, uh, what, one of the things that we do is we choose a kind of a, an area of focus. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in the general area of hope and hopelessness, but I was interested in, in how hope and hopelessness manifests themselves in medical conditions. And so uh, I did my internship and, and, and my study largely in hospitals and in clinics treating people who had... Uh, the physical manifestations of having been exposed to trauma as well as the psychological manifestations of having been exposed to trauma. Mm. So my early work sort of explored the interface between trauma and psychosomatic uh, biological uh, illness and, and, and disease and disability. Mm-hmm. So uh, graduate training is five years and I did this in five years. Oh. And so uh, in 1992 mm-hmm. uh, I was coming to the end of my um, work mm-hmm. at the Department of Psychiatry at Temple Hospital mm-hmm. and I was standing in the bathroom ironically at Temple University and a gentleman came and stood next to me 
And I turned to him and I said, well, what's your name and what do you do? And he said, my name is Calvin Stebbins and I'm a professor at Franklin and Marshall College. I'm a professor of physics. And uh, I had just offhandedly said, it would be interesting to work at Franklin and Marshall College. And he went his way and I went my way. And the, the year passed and at the end of the year I got a call from Franklin and Marshall College saying that I should come. They had heard a little bit about my research. I should come and give a lecture. And I went and I gave a lecture on this work, on trauma mm-hmm. and, and human helplessness and hopelessness. Okay, before we go there, though, there, I've sort of lost where you being a janitor in a synagogue and meeting this woman and traveling about, where that fit into your history. Yeah, okay, that's, that's an interesting question. Okay, so um, I complete my, um, my high school. Mm-hmm. I go into the Navy. Mm-hmm. I come out of the Navy. Mm-hmm. I go to Brandeis. Mm-hmm. Um, I spend the first year of the TYP program. And the second year, I go to uh, the, f- the freshman year. It's during that freshman year that I encounter Katinka Van Lamsverdi. Okay. And uh, when, I'm, uh, when I meet Katinka, uh, she immediately suggests that we, uh, we travel and we visit her parents who live in France. Mm-hmm. They are Dutch, but they live in France. Mm-hmm. And so we go to France. And from France, we begin this this journey Tra- of journey of, or- of traveling. Mm-hmm. What was significant about the reason why I mentioned Katinka right, right. was that Katinka helped me to accept myself in a way that no human being had before, and her love for me, and her um, genuine freedom from prejudice was one of the most startling experiences of my life. Mm -hmm. I oftentimes asked myself whether she hadn't been sent literally by mystical or spiritual forces for my own development, for my own healing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I always knew that my relationship with Katinka would end. Uh, I always knew that it was a temporary process. And I always dreaded the time that it would end. But interestingly enough, I got a call from her uh, one day, I had moved now to, to, to Pennsylvania. I was a student at the University of Pennsylvania. I got a call from her, and as soon as I heard her voice, I knew that it was over. Mm. And I said to her, it would be really, really wonderful if I could come to, to Massachusetts and spend the Christmas session with you and just say goodbye. And she said, that would be wonderful. So I, I went to, to Massachusetts, and I spent... Christmas with her and it mm. was actually on the morning of Christmas Day I woke up and I had a very strong feeling of, uh, of intense love and this feeling of intense love grew as the day went on and it grew to such an intensity that about one, by about 1 o'clock that afternoon it seemed to me that the whole space that I was in was saturated with this aura of love mm-hmm. and I went into the bathroom and when I opened the door to the bathroom, the, the, just it was light upon light upon mm-hmm. light. Mm-hmm. And I heard in my own sort of heart uh, a verse, a passage, some words. And the words were simply, um, I did it because you asked. You mustn't be afraid. Everything is going to be all right. Katinka is not the source of love. I am. And I count that as my first real spiritual experience. 
And so at the end of the relationship with Katinka, I became something of a kind of a mystic. I became very, very interested in the question, where did this voice come from? Um, what was the meaning of this encounter? Uh, how would this encounter change my life? What were my, my responsibilities in the light of this remarkable gift? Mm -hmm. And so I began an intense study of religion. Uh, the very first church I went to was a church that was the first church that Martin Luther King gave a sermon at following his ordination. He studied at Boston University. And when he was ordained, he gave the first sermon at a church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And that church was now being pastored by a fellow by the name of Reverend Brown. And I remember following that intense experience with Katenka, I went to Reverend Brown's church. And I can remember very clearly he gave the sermon that he prefaced by saying that his desire was to be a servant of God and to be a vehicle for God's love to everyone. Mm. And the sermon that he gave was the very embodiment of the truth of his of his uh, of his cry of his of his uh, of his yearning. And I immediately said that I am going to become a Christian. And I said to him, "Would you be willing to baptize me?" And he said, "If you come, I think it was two weeks from now, you can be baptized in my church because I'm having a back baptism." So I went to, to Reverend Brown's church and I received the baptism and I became a Christian. Mm. And uh, once I had become a Christian, because I had also the history of having studied the Jewish prophets, I, my love for Christ, my love for Judaism, uh, they were welded together. And I became interested broadly in um, the sacred journey of the heart. Uh, I, was, I became interested in the, in the process of redemption, the process of renewal. Um, and um, I began to let go of lots of habits that mm. I had developed in my youth. And uh, I could feel my life making progress. Uh, when I went to the University of Pennsylvania, I decided that I needed to know more about the life of the Buddha. And so I began to study the life of the Buddha. And... Uh, Buddhism attracted me with the same degree of intensity that, that Christianity had attracted me, and the same degree of intensity that Judaism had attracted me. And I began to think of myself as a Buddhist as well. So you had no narrow view of Christ being the way and the only way, the truth, and life. Well, I did. I did have the view that Christ was the way, the truth, and the light. That I was convinced that my encounter was... Uh, was an encounter with the Spirit of Christ. Um, now, what the Spirit of Christ was, I didn't know. I had no idea. Um, but th that encounter, rather than closing me to other traditions, made me hunger to learn more about them. Mm, okay. And so when I in had that encounter with Christ, and I reflected with these eyes upon my encounters at the synagogue, I realized that so much of the, the excitement that I experienced studying the Jewish text, I also experienced in a different way through this mystical experience. So for me, they were connected to one another. And then when I went to the, to the University of Pennsylvania and I studied Buddhism, the life of the Buddha, the words of the Buddha, 
evoked in me the same reverence, the same awe that the words of Christ evoked in me. Where did you put Buddha in relationship to Jesus in the, in the Jewish texts? How did you like sort that out? Well, well, you know, it was really, having studied Buddhism, I decided that I needed to study Islam because I had been hearing more and more about this prophet, Muhammad. I see. And uh, it was Stephen Dunning, the Kierkegaard scholar that I had told you about, who introduced me to the work and the life of Muhammad. And uh, I began to study under his tutelage the life of Muhammad. And I decided that I wanted to study Christianity and Islam at the same time. And so I began to take a, a course in Christianity, in the history of Christianity, in the philosophy of Christianity. Um, and so in this one year, I'm studying Buddhism intensely, more the mystical aspects of Buddhism. I'm studying Christianity in terms of its history and in terms of its, its, its core philosophy. And I'm studying the life of the Prophet Muhammad. And around three months into my coursework, towards the end of the semester, I go to Stephen Dunning and I say, these are all uh, speaking the same voice, speaking the same language, uh, having the same mission. Um, and he said to me that I had read the text too superficially, that if I read the text more carefully, I will be able to distinguish between these traditions. And he encouraged me to study more deeply. And I studied more deeply, but the more I studied, the more I became convinced that they were, in fact, um, animated by the same purpose, the same spirit. And actually, this threw me into existential uh, anxiety and existential confusion. Uh, because I respected Stephen Dunning. I continue to respect him. He's one of the most revered professors in my mind. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but I could not reconcile his read with my own read of these sacred texts. And uh, I can remember very clearly, I was reading one day in the graduate lounge at the University of Pennsylvania, The Religions of Man. It's the early title to the world's religions written by Houston Smith. And I was sitting in the graduate lounge reading this book when a man entered whose name was David Harrington. Mm. I had never met David Harrington, but he came into the graduate lounge. He sat not far from me and noticed that I was reading that book and he looked at me and he said you must know Leroy Richardson and it was one of the strangest questions that I had ever had because I did know Leroy Richardson but Leroy Richardson lived in Massachusetts and I had no understanding of why he would ask me such a thing and I said well why did you ask me about Leroy Richardson I do know him and he said well Leroy Richardson was a Baha'i and I can tell by your reading this book that you would like to know the Baha'is, to meet the Baha'is. And I said, uh, well, that I would be delighted to meet the Baha'is. Who are the Baha'is? And he said, well, tonight there is a fireside. A fireside is an informal gathering where people get together and learn about the Baha'i teachings. And he said, I'd like you to come to a fireside tonight. And uh, he invited me to the home of Don Camp, an African-American artist, pretty well known in, in Philadelphia. And when I walked into the room, I saw, sitting around a table, um, an African-American woman who reminded me much of my mother. Mm. Clearly, she was a, a very noble soul, but she was, she was a poor African-American woman. 
there were uh, a couple of physicians that were associated with uh, Temple University and the University of Pennsylvania. There was Don Camp, the artist. There was his wife, who was a nurse. There was um, there were a couple of youth. But immediately when I walked into the room, I felt very much at home and averse from the sacred writings of, uh, of uh, Christianity came to my mind. And the verse was, you shall know them by their fruit. Mm-hmm. And I had the sense that I had entered into a very special place. And they were talking that night about the teachings of Abdu'l-Bahá. And, and who is Abdu'l-Bahá? Abdu'l-Bahá was the eldest son of the Prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. And eld- as his eldest son, Abdu'l-Bahá had many, many responsibilities. And one of his responsibilities was to help the Baha'is and the friends of the Baha'is and all the peoples of the world to understand better the teachings of his father. And so many of the writings of Abdu'l-Bahá are specifically designed to introduce the core teachings of his father to Western audiences. So that night, they were reading from some of the tablets of Abdu'l-Bahá. And as I heard these tablets of Abdu'l-Bahá, again, the same sense of awe and of reverence and of love for that which is sacred was evoked in me. And uh, they were particularly talking, if I can remember correctly, about science and religion. And as a psychologist, to hear the writings of Abdu'l-Bahá on the relationship between science and religion um, was extremely attractive. Mm. And they were profoundly insightful and at the same time accessible to everyone. And so a great scholar, I could imagine, would find these illuminating, but so also would be that woman who was sitting there who reminded me of my mother, mm-hmm. who had had an eighth grade education. Right. So we were all being fed from the same fountain of knowledge, taking from it wonderful delights, and at the same time um, we could recognize that, uh, that, that he was really speaking to all of humanity and I felt I felt uh, extremely edified and extremely mm-hmm. excited that evening mm-hmm. and I asked if I could take some of the writings of Abdu'l-Bahá home mm-hmm. and I took a collection of talks that he gave called Paris Talks a collection of talks that he gave in Paris and I read those most of the day and most of the night and then I was beginning to have a very serious problem and the very serious problem that I was having was that Abdu'l-Bahá was saying in these talks that he delivered in Paris that we must have equal reverence and love for all the manifestations of God, for all the prophets of God. And I had become a Christian and I was devoted to Christianity. So on the one hand I could recognize from my experience the legitimacy of the Buddha, of Muhammad, But Abdu'l-Bahá was asking me not just to recognize their legitimacy, but to recognize that they were indeed equivalent in terms of their role, in terms of their purpose, to the Christ that I so loved and revered. And that for me was a serious challenge. Mm -hmm. And so I entered a period in which 
um, I had to really rethink uh, my relationship to the Buddha and Muhammad and these other prophets because I could no longer think of them as merely enlightened philosophers whose ideas were in harmony with Jesus' ideas but I had to think of them as uh, as equivalent in terms of their ontological status with the, with the being of Christ mm. and uh, that initiated in me a different process of study because it wasn't sufficient that I was attracted to their ideas I had to know more about their claims who did they claim to be uh, how are these claims related to the claims of Christ how could these claims be reconciled with some of the strong statements of Christ such as I am the way the truth and the light mm -hmm. no one goeth to the Father but by me mm -hmm. and so uh, I began to study these great souls with respect to their claims on history and their claims on being um, possessed of powers that are born of God and that are not merely the collection of philosophies but um, that embody a force or a power sufficient to recreate the heart to establish the bond that connects the human heart with the creator and uh, so I really started to study the the original teachings rather than commentaries on these great prophets mm -hmm. I began to read the Quran mm -hmm. I began to read the, the sacred scriptures of the Buddha I began to read also the Bhagavad Gita and uh, so reading the sacred scriptures of these faiths brought me then into a, a closer relationship to these uh, mm. to these great teachers. Mm -hmm. For how long a time did you do this study, on, and what conclusion did you come to? I did this study for about seven months, and uh, one of the people that I met when I was engaged in this study was a woman by the name of Ann Atkinson, mm. and Ann Atkinson said to me uh, that you've been studying a while. And uh, it would be really wonderful for you to go to a place visited by Abdu'l-Bahá and to reflect and to pray there and to ask to be guided. And she said, there is a, such a place, and that place is a place called Greenacre. And Greenacre is in Elliott, Maine. And she said, I want to encourage you to go over the weekend and spend some time meditating and reflecting at Greenacre. Then I went to Greenacre. And when I arrived at Greenacre... Um, and went into the room of Abdu'l-Bahá again for Abdu'l-Bahá had visited Greenacre Abdu'l-Bahá had visited Greenacre between 1911 and 1912 okay. and uh, there's a room uh, in a place called the Sarah Farmer Inn that is really kept as a place of meditation and prayer because it's a room that he'd stayed in I see. I, my understanding is that Abdu'l-Bahá is not a prophet of God in the way that Jesus is a prophet of God or Muhammad is a prophet of God but Abdu'l-Bahá was very special because he reflected to a superlative degree all the beautiful teachings of his father. Mm -hmm. And so people who encountered Abdu'l-Bahá were edified 
by his very being, by his very person. And so wherever Abdu'l-Bahá went, he left traces of the, of the light of this new revelation. And so Ann Atkinson said to me that there are these traces that are at Greenacre, and that if I go and visit Greenacre, I will feel these traces. And so I went, I arrived at Greenacre, and when I arrived at Greenacre, one of the first things that I wanted to do was to enter the room that Abdu'l-Bahá had stayed in. Mm. So I went upstairs, and uh, I entered the room of Abdu'l-Bahá. And when I entered the room of Abdu'l-Bahá, for me, there is um, a fragrance that I associate with that which is sacred that I can't describe. But you know it when you've experienced it. Yes, I know it when, it when it wafts over me. I know it. And when I entered that room, that fragrance wafted into my spiritual nostrils. And I found myself in a state of, of uh, relaxation and peace. And uh, I could feel that uh, I was on sacred ground. And... Uh, I knew that that experience of being on sacred ground could not have been created save through the intervention of God. And so I knew that this faith was of God, was associated with God. And if it was associated with God, it could not be associated with God if its founder was a liar. And its founder had said that this was inspired of God. And so... I began to piece together my own experience of the place with his claims and with my study of these other texts. And I, so I began to accept that, uh, that Baha'u'llah was indeed um, a prophet of God, a mm -hmm. messenger of God. Mm -hmm. And because Baha'u'llah said that Muhammad was a prophet of God and Buddha was a prophet of God, Zoroaster was a prophet of God I began to accept this and uh, in this accepting this I began to become a Baha'i mm. and the barrier between Christianity and Baha'i began to fade and I began to in fact even see the teachings of Christ in a new light and I began to reflect upon Christ's promise that he would in fact return, and that he would return bearing a new name, and that we must watch carefully. And I was reminded of the warnings that had been given, that we should really be seekers and not simply followers of a tradition, and that we should uh, have our eyes open and our ears attentive and our hearts vulnerable to the influences of the Promised One. Mm. And uh, I felt that I had entered that state of openness. And in that state of openness, I feel that, that, that Baha'u'llah um, entered my heart and did not cast out my love for Christ, but intensified it. Mm. My reverence for Christ grew. Many Baha'is told me that that was their experience but that was certainly my experience mm -hmm. and uh, in fact my reverence and love for Buddha intensified and my reverence and love for Muhammad grew and so to, for me to accept Baha'u'llah was not in any wise to reject what I had come to love 
but to love with more intensity. And uh, that visit, I became a Baha'i. Mm. And when I returned to Philadelphia, I returned as a Baha'i. Okay, so let's go back. You were invited to do a presentation at Franklin and Marshall. And what did that introduce for you when you did that presentation? Mm. It was a it was a funny kind of visit because um, I had to travel a long distance to get to Franklin and Marshall by car. I didn't know how far it was, but it took me um, what seemed to be forever to get there. It was like two hours, and I was living at the time. I had moved by that time to um, Mount Airy, Pennsylvania. And so I drove to Franklin and Marshall by myself in my car, and when I arrived, you know, Franklin and Marshall is one of the finest centers of learning in the world. It's got more than 200 years. It was founded just 11 years after the founding of the country. And it has an extraordinary record of scholarship. The professors at Franklin and Marshall College produce um, very fine scholarship and lots of it. And in fact, the students at Franklin and Marshall College publish regularly with their uh, professors. This is an unusual thing, to have undergraduates publishing regularly in psychology, in biology, in mm -hmm. geology, um, in uh, literature. And so Franklin and Marshall College was, in my mind, um, an institution high on the hill. And uh, I remember going there, making this long drive, and feeling a bit nervous about the whole thing. And when I arrived at Franklin and Marshall College, I arrived at a time in the history of the institution where there were only really a, a couple of people who were not white on the faculty. And uh, everyone in the psychology department was white and had been for hundreds of years. And so um, it was scary. But I was at that time really at the height of my sort of intellectual development. Now you, have got, you had gotten your doctorate at this point. I was, I was uh, just at the threshold of getting my doctorate. I would get it within the next two weeks or so. So I was finished my research. And I went there. And uh, I decided that I was going to talk about a part of my research. But strangely enough, that talk did not go as well as I had anticipated. I don't know whether they had sensed it, but I had sensed it. You know, we know what, what we are like. We know when we're really uh, in tune with ourselves, and we know when we're not so much in tune with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, that talk didn't feel that in tune with my... I didn't feel that in tune with myself... But I was very much in tune with the audience. And I felt a kinship with the place. I felt like it was a place for me. And uh, I could tell that a couple of the members of the department kind of liked me. They liked my style. They liked what I had to say. And I think that a couple of them weren't sure that they liked me. The following morning, two of those who were not sure came to have breakfast with me. And uh, we had breakfast, and uh, as we sat down,
to talk about my research. All of the things that I had felt had been missing the evening before mm. flooded to me and were available to me. And we connected in a, in a really, really wonderful way. We became friends mm. and we became colleagues. And uh, shortly thereafter, they invited me to join them in the department. And that was about 16 years ago now. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Franklin and Marshall is a really, really marvelous place to uh, to teach. Um, if you ask Franklin and Marshall students to read, they read. Ninety percent of the students come to class well prepared. Most of my students are white and upper class. And one very significant experience that I had at Franklin and Marshall occurred rather early in my, in my training. I was sitting in my office when a student came in who was apparently a fairly wealthy white male student. You know, we have lots of prejudices in our hearts. And I was a person who um, wasn't as prejudiced as others, but I had my prejudices. Sure. And they were centered around wealth and privilege. And I think that they connected to my experience at the boarding school. I think it was sensitive to wealth and privilege. And this student, I can remember, he came into my office. He was wearing his cap backwards. He sat in front of me, and he sat in front of me with a kind of a casualness that seemed disrespectful, uh, as though he were not really visiting his professor, but visiting some chum. And I was insulted by it, and I felt that I was seeing in this young man all the arrogance that I had associated with wealth and privilege. And I felt myself feeling a kind of a dislike for him. And then, because I knew that this wasn't befitting, that this was not the right attitude with which to interact with him, I struggled with myself for several minutes to try to reorient my thinking. And I said to myself, as he was sitting there, I was going to interact with him as if he were none of the things that I had projected onto him. Mm. I was going to make myself vulnerable to the possibility that he might not be this arrogant person. And um, I said to him, tell me a little about yourself. And he began to talk about himself. And as he began to talk about himself, I began to talk about myself. We talked for maybe 40 minutes, but the end of, at the end of this 40 minutes, I loved this student, and this student loved me. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those transformative moments in my life because I know that had I not changed my attitude towards this student, I would have constructed someone who could not have been in relationship to me mm-hmm. in the way that this person was. Mm-hmm. And I can remember that when he got up to leave, he felt the love that I felt for him just as intensely as I had felt it. Mm -hmm. And he reached out and he shook my hand, and the warmth with which he shook my hand was like an embrace. Mm -hmm. I felt as though, although he was only touching my hand, he was embracing my entire being. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. And I said, me too. A few days later, 
I saw him walking on the campus, and he calls out. He says, Hello, Professor Penn. We have to get together again for one of our talks. And I said to him, Yes, we have to get together again. And that was a turning point for me mm. because uh, it helped me to deepen my relationships with my students mm -hmm. because it freed me from the presumption that a person of wealth um, and a person of a different race had to be constructed in my mind in a particular way as, mm. as possessing certain attributes or qualities. Mm. And I found that I, it, it, it enabled me to become much closer to my students mm. and to love them in a way that, uh, that I'm very grateful for. Mm. So what does the future hold for you? It's very difficult to know what the future holds for me. Um, I've always found that my life has opened up doors unanticipated when they needed to be opened. And I'm very, very content right now with my research, with my students, with my institution. I have no plans of leaving. But if a door opens and I feel um, drawn to a different service, I'll, uh, I'll, happily, I'll happily go. Now, if someone's interested in your research, do you have any publications? Sure, yes. I have um, lots of publications in different areas. Um, you can certainly go on the website to find my work. Probably one of the most accessible pieces that I have written is a paper called Mind, Medicine, and Metaphysics Towards the Reclamation of the Human Spirit. It's in the American Journal of Psychotherapy. It's a paper that I wrote really in dialogue, not just with other psychologists and other people in my field, but in dialogue with, with uh, human beings who are interested in uh, the, the health and the happiness and the development of humankind. And uh, basically what I try to suggest in that paper is that uh, when we uh, understand the human spirit in its full efflorescence, in its full beauty, we can, um, we can connect with one another and we can connect with the world and we can grow in ways that are made impossible by a wholly materialistic understanding of, mm -hmm. of, of human life and of the human person. Mm -hmm. And so that's a paper that I like a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, Now, can they find that on the web? As that's, well? that's available on the web. That's available in most mm -hmm. academic uh, libraries. Mm -hmm. Is there a web address that you know off the top of your head? I know, uh, but if they do a Google search. Google search, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, I understand you, you've published a book. Yeah, I have a book that's called Overcoming Violence Against Women and Girls, The International Campaign to Eradicate a Worldwide Problem, and that's available at Amazon or mm -hmm. any of the, the major bookstores. It's published by Roman and Littlefield. It okay. was published in 2003. Very good. Well, Dr. Penn, thank you very much for taking the much. time to share with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Michael Penn an African-American professor of psychology at Franklin and Marshall College, who teaches psychopathology with courses related to the development of mental illness. If you want a recording of this interview or other past interviews, you're welcome to go to the website abahaiperspective.com. If you want information on the Baha'i faith specifically, you're welcome to visit the website baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.